Well, Joshua chapter 6. As we make our way through this book, very good chapter, very interesting chapter. Step by step, Joshua demonstrates in the corporate life of the people of God what happens in the life of an individual when the individual, having made a radical break with his past and having given his heart and life into the hand of God, begins to go through life with all of its attendant battle, with all of its troubles, with all of its enemies, and with all of its dangers, moving toward the goal that God wants him to have. This life that you and I live is the Canaan, the land of promise. We have come from the wilderness of sin and self, and we have crossed the Jordan from death to new life, and Canaan, our Canaan, is this life that we live now. And we have found, as the people of Israel did, that the warfare did not begin until they had left the wilderness behind and had crossed the place of death, Jordan, and come to new life in a new land. And it is interesting to note that there was no conflict while they were in the wilderness. There was no enemy in the wilderness. There was no work to be done in the wilderness. For in the wilderness, the place of desolation, their clothing lasted, uh, as the psalmist tells us, for 40 years. Their shoes did not wear out and the clothes on their backs did not wear out for 40 years. In the wilderness every day there was a sweet bread from heaven. There was water from nowhere literally as stones would burst forth with a spring of pure water from the hand of God. In the wilderness, in the place of desolation, there were no problems. And Christian friend, if your life is devoid of problems, it is because you're in the wilderness. Warfare and conflict are proof positive that the people of God are doing battle to possess what God has given them. And when the conflict ceases, you know that you as an individual and that we as a church are dead, so the devil is leaving us alone. You know, we never do see things the way God does. We get disturbed about everything that happens. God tells us it's part of the program. We want to go back to the good old days when there wasn't any trouble. Friends, when there wasn't any trouble, it's because you were in the wilderness. Corporately and individually in the wilderness, in a place of no conflict, in a place also of no service, of no use to God. And in Joshua chapter 6, we, see, we saw what happened in chapter 5 when they crossed, after having crossed Jordan, how they honored the Lord in preparation for warfare. And now in chapter 6, we consider the matter, the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. It is one thing to say, as the book of James uh, mentions to us, I have faith. But James says, not saying 
James does not say that we are to be saved or we are to uh, be what God wants us to do by faith plus our own goodness. That's not what James says. What James says is the same thing that Jesus said when Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. James says if you can find any possible way to demonstrate your faith apart from your life, then I, by my life, will prove to you that I have faith. And so it is one thing to say, I have faith. But those who have faith are those who live by faith. The Bible says the just shall live by their faith. Not by their knowledge, not by their reason, not by their logic, but by faith. Chapter 6 describes the obedience of faith. And the obedience required in chapter 6 to anybody's way of thinking would be quite unreasonable. Notice first of all in verses 1 to 5, here is God's plan. Now the picture is this. They have crossed Jordan. The river was parted. They went through on dry ground. God has magnified Joshua in the arm, eyes of the people. The fear of the Lord has spread out through the land. And they are ready to conquer. Joshua is a man of action. Too long he's been in the wilderness. Too long he's been waiting. Now the day has come. God has been honored. And Joshua wants to go forward and conquer in the name of the Lord. And so the captain of the Lord's host, whom he has just met, is described in the last three verses of chapter 5. The captain of the Lord's host tells Joshua what they are going to do. I can see Joshua as he begins to rub his hands and his eyes begin to gleam. And he knows in his own mind that surely God is the greatest military strategist of all time. And he just cannot wait to see the ingenuous plan of God. And the Lord says, Josh, tomorrow morning, I want you to get everybody ready. Seven priests to carry seven trumpets. I want them in front of the Ark of the Covenant. I want the men of war before and behind them. And I want you to get all of the people together, every soldier. And I want you to walk around the city. I would imagine there was a moment of silence. Finally unable to subdue himself any longer, Joshua says, What else? Nothing. Go back to camp. Joshua says, Oh. What about the next day? The captain of the Lord's host says, Thus thou shalt do for six days. You can see Joshua, whether he said anything about it or not, thinking to himself, We have been walking in one gigantic circle for 40 years. We have passed some of those landmarks so many times that there is no place left to write graffiti on the rocks. We have crossed the river. We have entered the land of promise. And now we're going to walk for another week. How strange is this plan of God. It called for the obedience of faith. 
Because you see, God said to Joshua in verse 2, I have given into your hand Jericho and the king thereof and the mighty men of valor. And here's how we're going to do it. You shall walk around the city or encompass it, all the men of war, and go round about the city once. Thus shalt thou do six days. And seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns. And on the seventh day you shall compass the city seven times, and the priest shall blow with the trumpets. Captain of the Lord's host continues, Joshua on the seventh day. Here is Joshua already with an awareness that the Israelis had that seven was the number of perfection. For it was in seven days that God completed all creation. And on the seventh day he rested. And so knowing that seven was the number of completion, Joshua said yes. And he said on the seventh day you will walk around the city seven times. More interesting by the moment. Verse 5, the captain of the Lord's host goes on, And it shall come to pass that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall ascend up every man straight before him. Here is a man who has had 40 years to train his army. Here is a man who is ready for war, ready to do battle in the name of Jehovah, ready to face any enemy. And he is told that after one week of a scenic tour of a very small place, he is to shout and the enemy, the place of their protection, will fall down. And I think it's safe to say that no general in the history of the world ever devised a plan of battle like that. The skeptics have scoffed at the accounts of the Old Testament and the things that it said. They denied that Jericho ever existed as a small walled village. They did not believe it for they had spent the last century excavating underneath the present city of Palms, the city of Jericho, seven miles south of Jerusalem. But a few years ago, quite by accident, a place was discovered near the, old, near the present site of Jericho. And after extensive and thorough excavation, the archaeologists have found to their amazement, to some of their amazement, that here was a small walled village. And at some time in its past, the strangest thing happened. Its walls, which were 12 feet thick, fell down flat. Nobody would ever have done it that way, but that was God's plan, and it called for the obedience of faith. Then notice in verses 6 to 9, notice what God's people did. Now, can you see Joshua as he mutters to himself and sends runners to find all of the captains and the commanders and the generals of his troops? And he brings them into his office and shuts the door and they sit down around the conference table and he says, Gentlemen, God has given us a battle plan. And about the time he got through telling them what it was, if they were like most folks when they first hear the will of God, 
they were ready to put him in a rubber room. Nonetheless, verse 6 begins, Joshua called the priests and said unto them, Take the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horn before the Ark of the Lord. And he said unto his people, Pass on and compass the city and let him that is armed pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And it came to pass when Joshua had spoken unto the people that the seven priests bearing the trumpets of ram's horns passed on before the Lord and blew with the trumpets and the Ark of the Covenant followed them. And the armed men went before the priests that blew with the trumpets, and the rearward, or those behind, came after the ark, the priests going on and blowing with the trumpets. Now, you know, there is no record here that Joshua really told anybody what they were going to do. He just said, it's time. We have honored the Lord. We have crossed the Jordan. God has revealed himself to us, and now it is time to fight the battle. And quite characteristic of all who truly know the Lord and are committed to Him, they rose and they did what God said. That was all there was to it. They didn't pass in review. They didn't consider it. They didn't refer it to a study group and they didn't take a vote on it. They did it. Here is what the people of God, the way in which they reacted to God's command. Then notice in verses 10 to 14, God's purpose is revealed. Now, can you think of any reason to walk around the city for the week? I never used to be able to see it. But then in the conversation with Joshua and in these verses, it became apparent to me that God did have a purpose. Remember who Israel was? God had sent Moses back to Egypt after all the years of his exile. Moses and Aaron had gone to the people and had said to the people, God has sent us and we are going to lead you out of slavery and into freedom. Well, anybody would react well to that kind of an idea. They like the idea. But the very next thing that happened was after Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, Pharaoh threw them out on their ear and he said to his taskmasters, don't give those crazy Jews any straw to make bricks. They've gone to fantasizing that some God is going to take them out of our land and so they've got too much time. Let them go gather their own straw. Well now folks, if God's dealings with us depended on our faithfulness, Israel would still be in Egypt. For their immediate reaction was to call Moses and tell him which ear to hang it on and tell him to hit the road. They said, what are you doing, you idiot? You're supposed to help us, and now we've got to gather our own straw. Well, right there, praise God that what God says he will do, he will do, and it's got nothing to do with us. Remember who Israel is? God went ahead in spite of their unbelief. God exercised His sovereign power over Egypt. God sent the plagues on Egypt. God destroyed all the false deities of Egypt. And God led Israel out of Egypt. Three days later, they find themselves with their backs to the sea. 
And they start looking for a rope and discussing how long it is going to be and how high they are going to hang Moses with the rope. Because he has led them to a place of no defense with their backs to the water. Unbelief, rebellion all over again. Well, God says to Moses, don't worry about it. Just turn around and talk to the water and everything will be all right. And when he had the sea parted, a cloud of fire stood behind them. Israel went through on dry ground and when the cloud of fire dissolved... Egypt and her armies went into the land, into the sea, and God drowned the whole Egyptian army. Well, now remember these folks, they walked ten days across country and they come to Mount Sinai. They're at the foot of that mountain while Moses is on the mountain dealing with God. They go into a wild, ungodly orgy and make for themselves a, a god of gold in the image of a calf. Remember Israel? 250 princes of the congregation, famous among the people, gather themselves together against Moses and they say, every one of us is as good as you are. Why do you exalt yourself above the Lord's people? And the earth opened and swallowed them and fire from God's altar came out and burned them to a crisp. Remember who Israel is? The very next day, the rumor mill started and people started coming to Moses and saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. As if Moses could command the earth and the fire from the altar of the Lord. And 24,000 people died that day in a plague. Remember who Israel is? They are those who in their whole history of God's dealing with them have always been unbelievers and full of doubt and fear and rebellion. But now notice. Notice that God has brought them, independent of their own ability, God has brought them into the land of promise. And if they are going to possess the land of promise, there are going to have to be some changes made. And so what God's purpose is here, seen in these verses and in the conversation with Joshua, is very simply this. God wants to find out if for the first time in their history they will let him be in charge and they will do what he says instead of applying human wisdom to the problem. That is the only purpose that God had in mind. If his people, when he spoke, were willing to do something they did not understand. Doesn't that speak to why they did this? What other purpose could there possibly be? God's purpose, Joshua commanded the people saying, You shall not shout nor make any noise with your voice. Neither shall any word proceed out of your mouth until the day that I bid you to shout, and then you shall shout. So the ark of the Lord compassed the city, going about it once, and they came into camp and lodged in the camp. Joshua rose early the next morning, and the priests took the ark of the Lord. And thus he describes what they did every day for six days. God's purpose continues to be with us that on the threshold of great victory, God wants to know if we're going to do what he says. 
And to this very day, the wisdom of Almighty God has never laid down in front of human logic and played servant to it. And to this day, very often, the plans of God make no more sense to the natural man or to the carnal Christian than they did to Israel at that time. And then notice verses 6, 15 to 19. God's promise came to pass on the seventh day. They got up early. They compassed the city seven times. And after the seventh time, the priests blew the trumpets. Joshua said, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city shall be accursed, all of those in it except those who helped us. And you in no way touch the accursed thing and trouble Israel because of it. But all the gold and silver and brass and iron are consecrated unto the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. This command, like the plan of battle, didn't make any sense. Why should a people who are trying to inhabit a land destroy the civilization that's there? When they could have cities that were ready-made for their habitation. God had promised that he would do it. And now without any doubt, without fear, without question, Joshua says, shout for the Lord has already given you the city. Notice that with God's promise and with the fulfilling of God's promise, these things that God does for us always come on God's terms. They always come on God's terms. He owes us no explanations. He owes us nothing but a command. And it is our responsibility to obey. And then in verses 20 to 26, here is what I have called God's honor. This verse 20 describes how when the trumpets were blown and the people had shouted, the walls fell down flat, every man went up straight in front of himself, and they took the city, utterly destroying all that was in it, men and women, young and old, all the animals, all of the goods. But Joshua made sure that the woman and her family who had befriended the spies were taken care of. You know, I suppose we've all seen adventure stories with the plot of how when someone had betrayed the city and the enemy had come in through the unlatched gate and the big gates had been thrown open and the enemy had inundated the city that the first one to be executed was the traitor the one who had betrayed his people. And we sometimes think of those things in terms of an object lesson to be loyal, but we need to remember where our loyalties are. Like the inhabitants of Jericho, our loyalties, and only Rahab the prostitute understood it. And by the way, if you go to Matthew and Luke and read the genealogy of Jesus, you will find that this woman was in his family tree. 
Only Rahab recognized that higher than any loyalty to tradition, higher than any loyalty to any human tie, higher than any loyalty to anything man-made, higher than any loyalty to anything, is a loyalty to the plan and the purposes of God. And notice here that in a most unusual way, it was unusual for all of the wall to fall down, but it was more unusual for all of the wall to fall down except that one little part of the wall where her house stood. But because she was faithful and obeyed God and laid her life on the line for God, God preserved her. And the honor of God was vindicated as God never forgets but in multitudes of ways repays time and time again anything that anybody does for him. You know, I heard a man say it this way. You don't ever have to worry about going, about letting God go into debt to you. He won't do it. God will never be in debt to us. May the omnipotence of God be the measure of our expectations. The saying goes. May we realize that no matter what we do or what we give or how demanding or how sacrificial what a sacrifice it calls for when we obey God, God will never let us go unblessed for obeying Him. Because you see, God's honor is at stake. God's honor is at stake when you lay your life, yourself, your possessions, your reputation on the line for God. And the happy experience of all of those who try is to discover that no matter how bleak things may look, when you lay yourself on the line for God, He will always take care of you. He will always take care of you. For His honor and His integrity are at stake. Then notice in verse 27 as we conclude chapter 6, very simply, God's method. Now we saw God's method in chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. We saw it in chapter 2, it is in chapter 3, it is in chapter 4, it is in chapter 5, it is in chapter 6. It is in every chapter and it is in every place in God's Word where He deals with people. God's method is always the same. So the Lord was with Joshua and His fame was noised throughout all the country. Next week, chapter 7, The Broken Agreement. Very interesting how quickly victory can evaporate when the people of God forget what they owe God and what the agreement they've made with Him is. What would you say or ask or discuss relative to the book of Joshua and especially chapter 6? Anybody? That's right. You know, he says the Lord's already done it. Shout, it's the truth. You know, this is the enigma of, of this book, and it's the enigma of the Christian life, is that God, God's promises are valid. You know, they don't have to wait to be validated in time 
Man dwells in time. God does not. They don't have to wait to be validated in time. They are valid. This land belonged to Israel, but they had to possess it. And we'll go on to find that the promise God made to them was, I will give you every, every inch of the soil on which you put your foot. They had to possess it. And that's strange about the land of Canaan in which we live, the land of promise, the place of God's presence. Everything that God has promised belongs to us as his people. But we possess what we take. It's interesting. It's an enigma. It's not easily understood at all. I don't understand everything I know about it, but it's the truth. What else? Do you have it? Boy, you better get it. Folks, we have got to... uh, I will let you do this at your pleasure.